315. October 20th, 2011. Clockwork Fade In, by Kari Dr. O. Welcome to Escape Pod, your weekly science fiction podcast. I'm Norm Sherman. Kids do the darndest things, huh? Especially pent-up latchkey kids, always making weird stuff. Forts out of couch cushions, pies out of mud, boredom-induced inventions. The boomerang, for example, clearly the work of an only child. Well, this week we bring you a story of said chicanery by Cory Doctorow called Clockwork Fagan. Corey's a science fiction author, activist, journalist, and blogger, the co-editor of Boing Boing at boingboing.net, and the author of the best-selling tour teens HarperCollins UK novel, Little Brother. His latest novel is For the Win, a young adult novel, and his latest short story collection is With a Little Help. This story is featured in an anthology edited by Kelly Link and Gavin Grant called Steampunk, an anthology of fantastically rich and strange stories. It just came out, so go pick yourself up a copy. You'll see a link in our show notes. The story is read to you by Grant Bococo of Radio Adventures of Dr. Floyd and Throwing Toasters. So get ready to get Dickensian, children, because it's story time. Clockwork Fagan by Cory Doctorow. Read by Grant Bococo. Monty Goldfarb walked into St. Agatha's like he owned the place. A superior look on the half of his face that was still intact, a spring in his step despite his steel left leg. And it wasn't long before he did own the place, had taken it over by simple murder and cunning artifice. It wasn't long before he was my best friend, and my master too, and the master of all St. Agatha's. And didn't he preside over a golden era in the history of that miserable place? I've lived at St. Agatha's for six years since I was eleven years old, when a reciprocating gear at the muddy York Hall of Computing took off my right arm at the elbow. My da had sent me off to muddy York when Ma had died of the consumption. He sold me in the service of the computers, and I'd thrived in the big city, hadn't cried, not even once, not even when Master Saunders beat me for playing kick the can with the other boys when I was meant to be polishing the brass. I didn't cry when I lost my arm, nor when the barber surgeon clamped me off and burned my stump with his medicinal tar. I've seen every kind of boy and girl come to St. Aggie's, swaggering, scared, tough, meek. The burned ones are often the hardest to read, inscrutable beneath their scars. Old Grinder didn't care, though, not one bit. Angry or scarred, burned or hobbling or swaggering and full of beans, the first thing he does when new meat turns up on his doorstep is tenderize it a little. That means a good long session with the belt. And Grinder doesn't care where the strap lands, whole skin or fresh scars, it's all the same to him. And then a night or two down the hole, where there's no light and no warmth and nothing for company except for the big hairy, muddy York rats, who'll come out and nibble at whatever's left of you, if you manage to fall asleep. It's the blood, see, it draws them out. So there we all was, that first night when Monty Goldfarb turned up, dropped off by a pair of sour-faced sisters in white capes, who turned their noses up at the smell of the horse droppings as they stepped out of their cold-fired banger and handed Monty over to Grinder, who smiled and dry-washed his hairy hands and promised, 
Oh, aye, sisters, I shall look over this poor crippled birdie like he was my own get. We'll be great friends, won't we, Monty? Monty actually laughed when Grinder said that, like he'd already winkled it out. As soon as the boiler on the sister's car had its head of steam up and they were clanking away, Grinder took Monty inside, leading him past the parlor where we all sat quiet as mice, eyeless or armless, shy a leg or half a face or even scalp, as was little Gertie Shinepate, whose hair got caught in the mighty rollers of one of the big pressing engines down at the logic mill in Cabbage Town. He gave us a jaunty wave as Grinder led him away, and I'm ashamed to say that none of us had the stuff to wave back at him or even to shout a warning. Grinder had done his work on us, too true, and turned us from kids into cowards. Presently, we heard the whistle and slap of the strap, but instead of screams of agony, we heard howls of defiance, and yes, even laughter. Is that the best you have, you greasy old sack of suet? Put some arm into it! And then... Oh, dearie me, you must be tired of your work. See how the sweat runs down your face, how your tongue doth protrude from your stinking gob. Oh, please, dear master, tell me your pathetic old ticker isn't about to pack it in. I don't know what I'd do if you drop dead here on the floor before me. And then your chest heaves like bellows. Is this what passes for beating around here? Oh, when I get the strap, old man, I will show you how to beat a man in Montreal. You may count on it, my sweet. The way he carried on, you'd think he was enjoying the beating. And I had picture of him leaping to and fro, avoiding the strap with the curious skipping jump of a one-legged boy. But when Grinder led him past the parlor again, he looked half dead. The good side of his face was a pulpy mess, and his one eye was near swollen shut and he walked with even more of a limp than he'd had coming in. But he grinned at us again, and spat a tooth on the threadbare rug that we were made to sweep three times a day, a tooth that left a trail of blood behind it on the splintery floor. We heard the thud as Monty was tossed down onto the hole's dirt floor, and then the labored breathing as Grinder locked him in. And then the singing, loud and distinct from under the floorboards. Come gather, ye good children, good news to you I'll tell, about how the grinder bastard will roast and rot in hell. There was more, apparently improvised. Later I'd hear Monty improvise many and many a song using some hymn or popular song for tune beneath his body in obscene lyrics, and we all strove to keep the smiles from our faces as Grinder stamped back into his rooms, shooting us dagger looks as he passed by the open door. And that was the day that Monty came to St. Agatha's home for the rehabilitation of crippled children. I remember my first night in the hole, a time which seemed to stretch into infinity, a darkness so deep I thought that perhaps I'd gone blind. And most of all, I remember the sound of the cellar door loosening, the bar being lifted, the ancient hinges squeaking, the blinding light stabbing into me from above, and the silhouette of old Grinder holding out one of his hairy, long-fingered hands for me to catch hold of, like an angel come to rescue me from the pits of Hades. Grinder pulled me out of the hole like a man pulling up a carrot, with a gesture practiced on many other children over the years. I near wept from gratitude. I'd soiled my trousers, and I couldn't hardly see nor speak from my dry throat, and every sound and sight was magnified a thousandfold, and I put my face in his coat, 
There, in the horrible smell of the man and the muscle beneath, like a side of beef, and I cried like he was my old ma'am come to get me out of a fever bed. I remember this, and I ain't proud of it, and I never spoke of it to any of the other St. Aggie's children, nor did they speak of it to me. I was broken then, and I was old Grinder's boy, and when he turned me out later that day with a begging bowl, sent me down to the distillery and off to the ports to approach the navies and the lobster backs for a ha'penny or a goat or a tuppence, I went out like a grateful doggy, and never once thought of putting any of Grinder's money by in a secret place for my own spending. Of course, over time I did get less doggy and more wolf about the grinder, dreamed of tearing out his throat with my teeth, and grinder always seemed to know when the doggy was gone, because, bung, you'd be back in that hole before you had a chance to cheat old grinder. A day or two downstairs would bring the doggy back out, especially if grinder tenderized you some with his strap before he heaved you down the stairs. I'd seen big boys and rough girls come to St. Aggie's hard as boots, and they come out of old Grinder's hole so good doggy that they practically licked his boots for him. Grinder understood children, I'll give you that. Give us a mean, hard father of a man, a man who doles out punishment and protection like old Jehovah from the sisters' hymnals, and we line up to take his orders. But Grinder didn't understand Monty Goldfarb. I'd just come down to lay the long tables for breakfast. It was my turn that day, when I heard Grinder shoot the lock to his door, and then the sound of his calluses rasping on the polished brass knob. As his door swung open, I heard the music box playing its tune, Grinder's favorite, a Scottish hymn that the music box sung in Gaelic. Its weird horse-gut voice box making the old words even weirder, like the eldritch crooning of some crone in a street play. Grinder's heavy tramp receded down the hall to the cellar door. The door creaked open, and I felt a shiver in my stomach, and down below that in my stones, as I remember my times in the pit. There was the thunder of his heavy boots on the steps, then his cruel laughter as he beheld Monty. Oh, my darling, is this how they take their punishment in Montreal? Tis no wonder the Frenchies lost their wars to the upper Canadians, with such weak little mice as you to fight for them. They came back up the stairs, Grinder's jaunty tromp, Monty's dragging, beaten limp. Down the hall they came, and I heard poor Monty reaching out to steady himself, brushing the framed drawings of Grinder's horrible ancestors as he went, and I flinched with each squeak of a picture knocked askew, for disturbing Grinder's forebears was a beating offense at St. Augie's. But Grinder must have been feeling charitable, for he did not pause to whip beaten Monty that morning. And so they came into the dining hall, and I did not raise my head, but beheld them from the corners of my eyes, taking cutlery down from the basket hung over the hook on my right elbow, and laying it down neat and precise on the splintery tables. Each table had three hard loaves on it, charity bread donated from the Muddy York's bakeries to us poor crippled kiddies, day old and more than a day old and as tough as stone. Before each loaf was a knife as sharp as a butcher's and as long as a man's forearm, and the head child at each table was responsible for slicing the bread using that knife each day. Children who were shy an arm or two were exempted from this duty, for which I was thankful, since those children were always accused of favoring some child with a thicker slice, and fights were common. Monty was leaning heavily on Grinder his head down and his steps like those of an old, old man, first a click of a steel foot, then a dragging from his remaining leg. 
but as they passed the head of the farthest table, Monty sprang from Grinder's side, took up the knife, and with a sure steady hand of movement so spry that I knew he'd been shamming from the moment Grinder opened the cellar door, he plunged the knife into Grinder's barrel chest, just over his heart, and shoved it home, giving it a hard twist. He stepped back to consider his handiwork. Grinder was standing perfectly still, his face pale beneath his whiskers, and his mouth was working, and I could almost hear the words he was trying to get out, words I'd heard so many times before. Oh, my lovely, you are a naughty one, but Grinder will beat the devil out of you, purify you with rod and fire, have no fear. But no sound escaped Grinder's furious lips. Monty put his hands on his hips and watched him with a critical eye of a bricklayer or a machinist surveying his work. Then calmly, he put his good right hand on Grinder's chest, just to one side of the knife handle. He said, Oh no, Mr. Grindsworth, this is how we take our punishment in Montreal. Then he gave the smallest of pushes, and Grinder went over like a chimney that's been hit by a wrecking ball. He turned then and regarded me full on. A good side of his face alive with mischief, the mess on the other side a wreck of burned skin. He winked his good eye at me and said, Now, he was a proper pile of filth and muck, wasn't he? World's a better place now, I dare say. He wiped his hands on his filthy trousers, grimed with the brown dirt of the cellar, and held it out to me. Montague Goldfarb, machinist boy and prentice artificer, late of old Montreal. Montreal, Monty, if you please, he said. I tried to say something, anything, and realized that I'd bitten the inside of my cheek so hard I could taste the blood. I was so discombobulated that I held out my abbreviated right arm to him, hook and cutlery basket and all, something I hadn't done since I first lost the limb. Truth be told, I was a little tender and shy about my mutilation, and I didn't like to think about it, and I especially couldn't bear to see whole people shying back from me as though I were some kind of monster. But Monty just reached out, calm as you like, and took my hook with his cunning fingers, fingers so long they seemed to have an extra joint, and shook my hook as though it were a whole hand. Sorry, mate, I didn't catch your name. I tried to speak again, and this time I found my voice. Sean O'Leary, I said, Antrium Town, then Hamilton, and then here. I wondered what else to say. Third grade computer man's boy, once upon a time. Oh, that's fine, he said. Skilled tradesmen's helpers are what we want around here. You know the lads and lasses around here, Sean? Are they more like you? Children who can make things, should they be called upon? I nodded. It was queer to be holding this calm conversation over the cooling body of Grinder, who now smelled of the odor as slack bowels had loosened into his fine trousers. But it was also natural somehow— caught in the burning gaze of Monty Goldfarb, who had the attitude of a master in his shop, running the place with utter confidence. Capital. He nudged Grinder with his toe. That meat'll spoil soon enough, but before he does, let's have some fun, shall we? Give us a hand. He bent and lifted Grinder under one arm. He nodded his head at the remaining arm. Come on, he said, and I took it, and we lifted the limp corpse of Zophar Grindersworth, the grinder of St. Aggie's, and propped him up at the head of the middle table, knife handle protruding from his chest amid a spreading red stain over his blue brocade waistcoat. Monty shook his head. 
That won't do, he said, and he picked up a tea towel from a pile by the kitchen door and tied it around Grinder's throat like a bib, fussing with it until more or less disguised the grisly wound. Then Monty picked up one of the loaves from the end of the table and tore a hunk off the end. He chewed at it for a time like a cow at her cud, never taking his eyes off me. Then he swallowed and said, Hungry work, and laughed a spray of crumbs. He paced the room, picking up cutlery I'd laid down and inspecting it, gnawing thoughtfully on the loaf's end in his hand. A pretty poor setup, he said, but I'm sure that wicked old lizard had a pretty soft nest for himself, didn't he? I nodded and pointed down the hall to Grinder's door. The key's on his belt, I said. Monty fingered the key ring chained to Grinder's thick leather belt, then shrugged. All one-cylinder jobs, he said, and picked up a fork out of the basket that was still hanging from my hook. Nothing to them, faster than fussing with his belt. He walked purposefully down the hall, his metal foot thumping off the polished wood, leaving dents in it. He dropped to one knee at the lock, then put the fork under his steel foot and used it as a lever to bend back all but one of the soft pot metal tines, so now that the fork had just one long, thin spike. He slid it into the lock, felt for a moment, then gave a sharp, precise flick of his wrist and twisted open the doorknob. It opened smoothly at his touch. Nothing to it, he said, and got back to his feet, dusting off his knees. Now, I'd been in Grinder's rooms many times when I'd brought in the boiling water for his bath or run the rug sweeper over the thick Turkish rugs or dusted the frame medals and certificates and the cunning machines he kept in his apartment, but this was different because this time I was coming in with Monty, and Monty made you ask yourself, why isn't this all mine? Why shouldn't I just take it? And I didn't have a good answer apart from fear, and fear was giving way to excitement. Monty went straight to the humidor by Grinder's deep plush chair and brought out a fistful of cigars. He handed one to me, and we both bit off the tips and spat them on the fine rug, then lit them with a polished brass lighter in the shape of a beautiful woman that stood on the other side of the chair. Monty clamped his cheroot between his teeth and continued to paw through Grinder's sacred possessions, all the fine goods that the children of St. Aggie's weren't even allowed to look closely upon. Soon he was swilling Grinder's best brandy from a lead crystal decanter, wearing Grinder's red velvet housecoat topped with Grinder's fine beaver skin bowler hat. And it was thus attired that he stumped back into the dining room where the corpse of Grinder still slumped at table's end and took up a stance by the old ship's bell that the morning child used to call the rest of the kids to breakfast. And he began to ring the bell like St. Aggie's was on fire. And he called out as he did so, a wordless, bird-like call, something like a rooster's crowing. Such a noise had never been heard in St. Aggie's before. With a clatter and a clank and a hundred muffled arguments, the children of St. Aggie's pelted down the staircases and streamed into the kitchen, milling uncertainly, eyes popping at the sight of our latest arrival in his stolen finery, still ringing the bell, still making his crazy call, stopping now and again to swill the brandy and laugh and spray a boozy cloud before him. Once we were all standing in our nightshirts and underclothes, every scar and stump on display, he left off his ringing and cleared his throat ostentatiously. Then he stepped nimbly onto one of the chairs, wobbling for an instant on a steel peg, then leaped again, like a goat, leaping from rock to rock up onto the table, sending my carefully laid cutlery clattering every which way. He cleared his throat again and said, "'Good morrow to you, good morrow, all good morrow "'to the poor, crippled, abused children of St. Aggie's.' 
We haven't been properly introduced, so I thought it fitting that I should take a moment to greet you all and share a bit of good news with you. My name is Montreal Monty Goldfarb, machinist boy, prentice artificer, gentleman adventurer, and liberator of the oppressed. I am late foreshortened, he waggled his stumps, as are so many of you. And yet, and yet I say to you, I am as good a man as I was ere I lost my limbs, and I say that you are too. There was a cautious murmur at this. It was the kind of thing the sisters said to you in the hospital before they brought to you to St. Aggie's. The kind of pretty lies they told you about the wonderful life that awaited you with your new crippled body once you had been retained and put to productive work. Children of St. Aggie's, hearken to old Montreal Monty, and I will tell you of what is possible and what is necessary. First, what is necessary? To end oppression wherever we find it, to be liberators of the downtrodden and the meek. When that evil dog's pizzle flogged me and threw me into his dungeon, I knew that I'd come upon a bully, a man who poisoned the sweet air with each breath of his cursed lungs, and so I resolved to do something about it. And so I have. He clattered the table's length to where Grinder's body slumped. Many of the children had been so fixated on the odd spectacle that Monty presented that they hadn't even noticed the extraordinary sight of our tormentor sat uh, apparently sleeping or unconscious. With the air of a magician, Monty bent and took the end of the tea towel and gave it a sharp yank so that all could see the knife handle protruding from the red stain that covered Grinder's chest. We gasped, and some of the more faint-hearted children shrieked, but no one ran off to get the law, and no one wept a single salty tear for our dead benefactor. Monty held his arms over his head in a wide V and looked expectantly upon us. It only took a moment before someone, perhaps it was me, began to applaud, to cheer, to stomp, and then we were all at it, making such a noise as you might encounter in a tavern full of men who had just learned that their side has won a war. Monty waited for it to die down a bit, and then, with a theatrical flourish, he pushed Grinder out of his chair, letting him slide to the floor with a meaty thump, and settled himself into the chair the corpse had lately sat upon. The message was clear. I am now master of this house. I cleared my throat and raised my good arm. I'd had more time than the rest of St. Augie's children to consider life without the terrible Grinder, and a thought had come to me. Monty nodded regally at me, and I found myself standing with every eye in the room upon me. Monty, I said, on behalf of the children of St. Aggie's, I thank you most sincerely for doing away with the cruel old Grinder. But I must ask you, what shall we do now? With Grinder gone, the sisters will surely shut down St. Aggie's, or perhaps send us another vile old master to beat us. And you shall go to the gallows at King Street Gowl, and, well... "'Just seems like a pity, that,' I waved my stump. "'It just seems like a pity, is what I'm saying.' Monty nodded again. "'Sean, I thank you, for you have come neatly to my next point. "'I spoke of what was needed and what was possible, "'and now we must discuss what is possible.' "'I had a nice long time to meditate on this question last night "'as I languished in the pit below, "'and I think I have a plan, "'though I shall need your help if we are to pull it off.' He took up a loaf of hard bread and began to wave it like a baton as he spoke, thumping it on the table for emphasis. Item, 
I understand that the sisters provide for St. Aggie's with such arms as are necessary to keep our lamps burning, fuel in our fireplaces, and gruel and such on the table. Yes? We nodded. Right. Item. Nevertheless, old turd gargler here was used to sending you poor kitties out to beg with all your wounds on display to bring him whatever coppers you could coax from the drunkards of Muddy York with which to feather his pretty little nest yonder, correct? We nodded again. Right. Item. We are all of us the crippled children of Muddy York's great information processing factories. We are artificers, machinists, engineers, cunning shapers and makers. Every one. For that's how we came to be injured. Correct? Right. Item. It is a murdersome pity that such as we should be turned out to beg when we have so much skill at our disposal. Between us... We could make anything, do anything, but our departed tormentor lacked the native wit to see this, correct? Right. Item. The sisters of the simpering order of St. Agatha's weeping sores have all the cleverness of a turnip. I saw this for myself during my tenure in their hospital. Fooling them would be easier than fooling an idiot child, correct? Right. He levered himself out of the chair and began to stalk the dining room, stumping up and down. Someone tell me, how often do the good sisters pay us a visit? Sundays, I said, when they take us all to church. He nodded. And does that spoiled meat there accompany us to church? No, I said. No, he stays here. He says he worships in his own way. Truth was, he was invariably too hungover to rise on Sunday. He nodded again. And today is Tuesday. Which means that we have five days to do our work. What work, Monty? Why, we are going to build a clockwork automaton based on that evil tyrant that I slew this very morning. We will build a device of surpassing and fiendish cleverness such as will fool the nuns and the world at large into thinking that we are still being ground up like mincemeat. While we lead a life of leisure, fun, and invention, such as befits children of our mental stature and good character. Here's the oath we swore to Monty before we went to work on the automaton. I, state your full name, do hereby give my most solemn oath that I will never, ever betray the secrets of St. Agatha's. I bind myself to the good fortune of my fellow inmates at this institution and vow to honor them as though they were my brothers and sisters and not fight with them, nor spite them, nor do them any down or dirty. I make this oath freely and gladly, and should I betray it, I wish that old Satan himself would rise up from the pit, tear out my treacherous guts, and use them for bootlaces, that his devils would tear my betrayer's tongue from my mouth and use it to wipe their private parts, and that my lying body would be fed inch by inch to the hungry and terrible basilisks of the pit. So I swear, and so mote be it. There were two older children in the house who'd work for a tanner. Matthew was shy all the fingers on his left hand. Becca was missing an eye in her nose, which she joked was a mercy, for there is no smell more terrible than the charnel reek of the tanning works. But between them, they were quite certain that they could carefully remove, stuff, and remount Grinder's head, careful to leave the jaw in place. 
As the oldest machinist at St. Aggie's, I was constricted to work on the torso and the armature mechanisms. I played chief engineer, bossing a gang of six boys and four girls who had experience with mechanisms. We cannibalized St. Aggie's old mechanical wash wringer with its spindly arms and many fingers, and I was sent out several times to Pond Grinder's Fine Crystal and Pocket Watch to raise money for the parts. Monty oversaw all, but he took personal charge of Grinder's voice box, through which he would imitate old Grinder's voice when the sisters came by on Sunday. St. Aggie's was fronted with a Dutch door, and Grinder habitually opened only the top half to jaw with the old sisters. Monty said that we could prop up the partial torso on a low table to hide the fact that no legs depended from it. We'll tie a sick kerchief around his face and give out that he's got the flu and that it's spread through the whole house. That'll get us all out of church, which is a tidy little jackpot in and of itself. The kerchief will disguise the fact that his lips aren't moving in time with his talking. I shook my head at this idea. The nuns were hardly geniuses, but how long could this hold out for? It won't have to last more than a week. By next week, we'll have something better to show him. Here's the thing. It all worked like a fine-tuned machine. The kerchief made him look like a bank robber, and Monty painted his face to make him seem more lively, for the tanning had dried him out some. He also doused the horrible thing with liberal lashings of bay rum and greased his hair with heavy pomade, for the tanning process had left him with a smell like an outhouse on a hot day. Monty affixed an armature to the thing's bottom jaw. We'd had to break it to get it open, prying it roughly with a screwdriver, cracking a tooth or two in the process, and I have nightmares to this day about the sound it made when it finally yawned open. A child, little legless Dora, whose begging pitch included a sad little puppetry show, could work this armature by means of a squeeze bulb taken from the siphon starter on Grinder's cider brewing tub, and so make the jaw go up and down in time with the speech. The speech itself was accomplished by means of the horse-gut voice box from Grinder's music box. Monty sure-handedly affixed a long, smooth glass tube, part of the cracking apparatus that I had been sent to market to buy, to the music box resonator. This he ran up behind our automatic grinder. Then, crouched on the floor before the voice box stationed next to Dora on her wheeled plank, he was able to whisper across the horse-gut strings and have them buzz out a credible version of Grinder's whiskey and growl. And once he tuned the horse-gut just so, the vocal resemblance was even more remarkable. Combined with Dora's skillful puppetry, the effect was galvanizing. It took a conscious effort to remember that this was a puppet talking to you, not a man. The sisters turned up at the appointed hour on Sunday, only to be greeted by our clockwork grinder stood in the half-door, face swathed in a flu mask. We'd hung quarantine bunting from the windows, crisscrossing the front of St. Aggie's with it for good measure, and a goodly number of us kiddies were watching from the upstairs window with our best-drawn and sickly looks on our faces. So the sisters hung back practically at the pavement and shouted, Mr. Grindersworth, in alarmed tones, staring with horror at the apparition in the doorway. "'Sisters, good day to you,' Monty said in his horse gut while Dora worked the squeeze bulb and the jaw went up and down behind its white cloth and the muffled simulation of Grinder's voice emanated from the top of the glass tube, hidden behind the automaton's head so that it seemed to come from the right place. "'Though not such a good day for us, I fear. "'The children are ill?' Monty gave out a fine sham of Grinder's laugh, the one he used when dealing with the proper people, with the cruelty barely plastered over." Oh, not all of them, but we have a dozen cases. Thankfully, I appear to be immune, 
and, oh, my, but uh, wouldn't you believe the help these tots are in the practical nursing department? Fine kitties, my charges, yes, indeed. But still, best to keep them away from the general public for a nonce, eh? I'm quite sure we'll have them up on their feet by next Sunday, and they'll be glad indeed of the chance to get down on their knees and thank the beneficent Lord for their good health. Monty was laying it on thick, but then so had Grinder when it came to the sisters. We shall send over some help after the services, the head sister said, hands at her breast, a tear glistening in her eye at the thought of our bravery. I thought the jig was up. Of course the order would have some sisters who'd have the flu and gotten over it, rendering them immune, but Monty never worried. No, no, he said smoothly. I had the presence of mind to take up the cranks that operated the arms we'd constructed for him, waving them about in a negating way. This effect rather spoiled by my nervousness, so that they seemed more octopus tentacle than arm, but the sisters didn't appear to notice. As I say, I have plenty of help here with my good children. A basket, then, the sister said. Some nourishing food and fizzy drinks for the children. Crouching low in the ante-room, we crippled children traded disbelieving looks with one another. Not only had Monty gotten rid of Grinder and gotten us out of going to church, but he'd also set things up so that the sisters of St. Aggie's were going to bring us their best grub for free because we were all so poorly and ailing. It was all we could do not to cheer. And cheer we did later, when the sisters set down ten huge hampers down on our doorstep, whence we retrieved them, finding in them a feast fit for princes. Cold meat pies, glistening with aspic, marrow bones still warm from the oven, suet pudding and jugs of custard with the skin on top of them, huge bottles of fizzy lemonade and small beer. By the time we laid it out in the dining room, it seemed like we'd never be able to eat it all. But we ate every last morsel, and four of us carried Monty about on our shoulders, two carrying, two steadying the carriers, and someone found a concertina, and someone found combs and wax paper, and we sung until the walls shook, the mechanics folly, a combinatorial explosion at the computer works, and then endless rounds of, for he's a jolly good fellow. Monty had promised some improvements to the clockwork grinder by the following Sunday, and he made good on it. Since we no longer had to beg all day long, we children of St. Aggie's had time in plenty, and Monty had no shortage of skilled volunteers who wanted to work with him on Grinder 2, as he called it. Grinder 2 sported a rather handsome, large, droopy mustache, which hid the action of its lips. This mustache was glued onto the head assembly one hair at a time, a painstaking job that denuded every horsehair brush in the house, but the effect was impressive. More impressive was the leg assembly I bossed into existence, a pair of clockwork pins that could lever Grinder from a seated position into full upright, balancing him by means of three gyros we hid in his chest cavity. Once these were wound and spun, Grinder could stand up in a very natural fashion. Once we'd arranged the furniture to hide Dora and Monty behind a large armchair, you could stand right in the parlor and converse with him, and unless you were looking very hard, you'd never know but what you were talking with a mortal man and not an automaton made of tan flesh, steel, springs, and clay. We'd used rather a lot of custom-made porcelain from the prosthetic works to get his legs right. The children who were shy a leg or two knew which leg makers in town had the best wares. And so, when the sisters arrived the following Sunday, they were led right into the parlor, whose lace curtains kept the room in a semi-dock state, and there they parlayed with Grinder, who came to his feet when they entered and left. 
One of the girls was in charge of his arms, and she had practiced with them so well that she was able to move them in a very convincing fashion. Convincing enough, any road, the sisters left Grinda with a bag of clothes and a bag of oranges that had come off a ship that had sailed from Spanish Florida right up the St. Lawrence to the port of Montreal, and thereafter traversed by rail car to Muddy York. They had made a parcel of these succulent treasures to Grinda to help the kiddies keep away from the scurvy. But Grinder always kept them for himself or flogged them to his pals for a neat penny. We wolfed the oranges right after services and then took our Sabbath free with games and more brandy from Grinder's sideboard. And so we went week on week with small but impressive updates to our clockwork man. Hands that could grasp and smoke a pipe. A clever mechanism that let him throw back his head and laugh. Fingers that could drum on the table beside him. Eyes that could follow you around the room, and eyelids that could blink, albeit slowly. But Monty had much bigger plans. I want to bring in another fifty-six bits, he said, gesturing at the computing panel in Grinder's parlor. A paltry eight-bit works. That meant that there were eight switches with eight matching levers connected to eight brass rods that ran down to the public computing works that ran beneath the streets of Muddy York. Grinder had used his eight bits to keep St. Augie's books both the set he showed to the sisters and the one in which he kept track of what he was trousering for himself. And he let one lucky child work the great stiff return arm that sent the instructions set on the switch back to the hall of computing for queuing and processing on the great frames that had cost me my good right arm. An instant later, the process answer would be returned to the levers above the switches and whatever interpretive mechanism you had yoked up to them. Grinder had a telegraph machine that printed the answers on a long, thin sheet of paper. Fifty-six bits, I boggled at Monty. A sixty-four-bit rig wasn't unheard of, if you were a mighty shipping company or an insurer. But in a private home, well, the racket of the switches would shake the foundations. Remember, dear Rita, that each additional bit doubled the calculating faculty of the home panel. Monty was proposing to increase St. Aggie's computational capacity by a factor more than a, a quadrillion-fold. We computer men are accustomed to dealing in these rarefied numbers, but they may surprise you. Have no fear. A quadrillion is a number of such surpassing monstrosity that you must have the knack of figuring to even approach it properly. Monty, I gasped, are you planning to open a firm of accountants at St. Aggie's? He laid a finger alongside his nose. Not at all, my old darling. I have thought perhaps that we could build a tiny figuring engine into our grinder's chest cavity, one that could take programs punched off of a sufficiently powered computing frame, and that these might enable him to walk about on his own as natural as you please, and even carry on conversations as though he were a living man. Such a creation would afford us even more freedom and security, as you must be able to see. But it will cost the bloody world, I said. Oh, I didn't think we'd pay for it, he said. Once again, he laid his finger alongside his nose. And that's how I came to find myself down our local sewer. In the dead of night, a 17-year-old brassjacker bossing a gang of eight kids with ten arms, seven noses, nine hands, and eleven legs between them, working furiously and racing the dawn to fit thousands of precision brass pushrods with lightly balanced joints from the local multifarious amalgamation and amplification switch house to St. Aggie's utility cellar. It didn't work, of course, not, not that night, but at least we didn't break anything and alert the Upper Canadian Computing Authority to our mischief. 
Three nights later, after much fine-tuning, oiling, and desperate prayer, the panel at St. Aggie's boasted 64 shining brass bits, the very height of modernity and engineering. Monty and all the children stood before the panel, which had been burnished to a mirror shine by No-No's Timmy, who'd done finishing work before a careless master had stumbled over him, pushing him face-first into a spinning grinding wheel. In the gaslight, we appeared to be staring at a group of mighty heroes, and when Monty turned to us in regard, he had bright tears in his eyes. Sisters and brothers, we've done ourselves proud. A new day has dawned for St. Aggie's and for our lives. Thank you. You have done me proud. We shared out the last of Grinder's brandy, a thimbleful for each, even for the smallest kitties, and drank a toast to the brave and clever children of St. Aggie's and to Montreal Monty, our savior and the founder of the feast. Let me tell you some about the life at St. Aggie's in that golden age. Whereas before, we'd rise at 7 a.m. for a mean breakfast, prepared by unfavored children, whom Grinder punished by putting them in the kitchen at 4.30 to prepare the meal— followed by a brief sermon roared out by Grinder. Now we rose at a very civilized 10 a.m. to eat a leisurely breakfast over the daily papers that Grinder had subscribed to. The breakfasts, all meals and chores, were done on a rotating basis, with exemptions for children whose infirmity made performing some of the tasks harder than others. Though all worked, even the blind children sorted weevils and stones from the rice and beans by touch. Whereas before, Grinder had sent us out to beg every day, excepting Sundays, debasing ourselves and putting our injuries on display for the purposes of sympathy, now we were free to laze around the house all day or work on our own fancies, painting or reading or just playing like cherished children of rich families who didn't need to send their young ones to the city to work for the family fortune. But most of us quickly bored of the life of Riley, and for us there was plenty to do. The clockwork grinder was always a distraction, especially after Monty started work on a mechanism that would accept punch-taped instructions from the computing panel. When we weren't working on grinder, there was other work. We former apprentices went back to our old masters, men and women who were guilty but glad enough to see us return in the main, and told them that the skilled children of St. Aggie's were looking for piecework as part of our rehabilitation at a competitive price. It was hardly a lie, either. As broken tools and mechanisms came in for mending, the boys and girls taught one another their crafts and trade, and it wasn't long before a steady flow of cash came into St. Aggie's, paying for better food, better clothes, and soon enough, the very best artificial arms, legs, hands, and feet, and the best glass eyes, the best wigs. When Gertie Shinepate was fitted for her first wig and saw herself in the great-looking glass and grinder study, she burst into tears and hugged all a sundry, and thereafter, St. Aggie's bought her three more wigs to wear as the mood struck her. She took to styling these wigs with combs and scissors, and before long she was cutting hair for all of us in St. Aggie's. We never looked so good. That gilded time from the end of my boyhood is like a sweet dream to me now. A sweet lost dream. No invention works right the first time around. The inventor's tales you read in Science Penny Dreadfuls where some engineer discovers a new principle, puts it into practice, and shouts Eureka and sets up his own foundry? They're rubbish. Real invention is a process of repeated, crushing failure that leads very rarely to a success. If you want to succeed faster, then there's nothing for it but to fail faster and better.
The first time Monty rolled a paper tape into a cartridge and inserted it into Grinder, we all held our breath while he fished around the arse of Grinder's trousers for the toggle that released the tension on the mainspring we wound through a keyhole in his hip. He stepped back as the soft whining of the mechanism emanated from Grinder's body, and then Grinder began very slowly to pace the room's length, taking three long, if jerky, steps, then turning about and taking three steps back. Then he lifted a hand as in a greeting, and his mouth stretched into a rictus that might have passed for a grin. And then, very carefully, Grinder punched himself in the face so hard that his head came free from his neck and rolled across the floor with a meaty sound. It took our resident taxidermist full two days to repair the damage, and his body went into a horrible paroxysm, like the St. Vitus dance, until it too fell on the floor. That was on Monday, and by Wednesday we had Grinder back on his feet with his head reattached. Again, Monty depressed his toggle, and this time, Grinder made a horrendous clanking sound and pitched forward. And so it went, day after day, each tiny improvement accompanied by abject failure. And each Sunday, we struggled to put the pieces together so Grinder could pay his respects to the sisters. Until the day that sisters brought around a new child to join our happy clan, and it all began to unravel. We'd been lucky in that Monty's arrival at St. Aggie's coincided with a reformer's movement that had swept Upper Canada, a movement whose figurehead, Princess Lucy, met with every magistrate, councilman, alderman, and beadle in the colony, with the sleeves of her dresses pinned up to the stumps of her shoulders, sternly discussing the plight of children who worked in the information foundries across the colonies. It didn't do no good in the long run, of course, but for the short term, word got round that the authorities would come down very hard on any master whose apprentice lost a piece of himself in the data mills. So it was some months before St. Aggie's had any new meat to arrive upon its doorstep. The new meat in question was a weepy boy of about eleven, the same age I'd been when I arrived, and he was shy his left leg all the way up to the hip. He had a crude steel leg in its place, strapped up with a rough, badly cured cradle that must have hurt like hellfire. He also had a splintery crutch that he used to get around with, the sort of thing that the Sisters of St. Aggie's bought in huge lots from unscrupulous tradesmen who cared nothing for the people who'd come to use them. His name was William Sansousey, a Metis boy who'd come from the wild woods of Lower Canada seeking work in Muddy York, who'd found instead an implacable machine that had torn off his leg and devoured it without a second's remorse. He spoke English with a thick French accent and slipped into Jewel when he was overcome with sorrow. Two sisters brought him to the door on a Friday afternoon. We knew they were coming. They'd sent around a messenger boy with a printed telegram telling Grinder to make room for one more. Monty wanted to turn his clockwork grinder loose to walk to the door and greet them, but we'd all told him that he'd be mad to try it. There was so much that could go wrong, and if the sisters worked out what had happened, we could finish up dangling from nooses at King Street Gowl. Monty relented resentfully, and instead we seated Grinder in his overstuffed chair, with Monty tucked away behind it, ready to converse with the sisters. I hid with him, ready to send Grinder to his feet and extend his cold, leathery, artificial hand to the boy when the sisters turned him over. And it went smoothly, that day. When the sisters had gone and their car had built up its head of steam and chuffed and clanked away, we had merged from our hiding place. Monty broke into slangy, rapid French, gesticulating and hopping from foot to peg and back again, and William's eyes grew as big as saucers as Monty explained the lay of the land. The clang when he thumped Grinder with his cast-iron chest made William leap back and he hobbled toward the door. 
Wait, wait, Monty called, switching to English. Wait, will you, you idiot? This is the best day of your life, young William. But for us, you might have entered a life of miserable bondage. Instead, you will enjoy all the fruits of liberty, rewarding work, and comradeship. We take care of our own here at St. Aggie's. You will have top grub, a posh leg, and a beautiful crutch that's as smooth as a baby's arse, and as soft as a lady's bosom. You will have the freedom to come and go as you please, and you'll have a, a warm bed to sleep in every night. And best of all, you'll have us, your family here at St. Aggie's. We take care of our own, we do. The boy looked at us, tears streaming down his face. He made me remember what it had been like on my first day at St. Aggie's. The cold fear coiled around your guts like a rope caught in a reciprocating gear. At St. Aggie's, we put on our brave faces, never cried where no one could see us, but seeing him weep made me remember all the times I'd cried. Cried for my lost family who'd sold me into indenture. Cried for my mangled body, my ruined life. But living without Grinder's constant terrorizing must have softened my heart. Suddenly it was all I could do to stop myself from giving the poor little mite a one-armed hug. I didn't hug him, but Monty did, stumping over to him and the two of them bawled like babies. Their peg legs knocked together as they embraced like drunken sailors, seeming to cry out every tear we'd any of us ever held in. Before long, we were all crying with them, fat tears streaming down our faces, the sound like something out of the pit. When the sobs had stopped, William looked around at us, wiped his nose, and said, Thank you. I think I am home. But it wasn't home for him, poor William. We had children like him in the bad old days, Children who just couldn't get back up onto their feet or foot again. Most of the time, I reckon, they were kids who couldn't make it as apprentices either. Kids who'd spent their working lives full of such awful misery that they were bound to fall into a machine. And being sundered from their limbs didn't improve their outlook. We tried everything we could think of to cheer William up. He'd worked for a watchsmith, and he had a pretty good hand at disassembling and cleaning mechanisms. His stump ached him like fire, even after he'd been fitted with a better apparatus by St. Aggie's best leg maker, and it was only when he was working with his little tweezers and brushes that he lost the grimace that twisted up his face so. Monty had him strip and clean every clockwork in the house, even the ones that were working perfectly, even the delicate works we'd carefully knocked together for the clockwork grinder. But it wasn't enough. In the bad old days, Grinder would have beaten the boy down and sent him out to beg in the worst parts of town, hoping that he'd be run down by a cart or killed by one of the blunderbuss gangs that marauded there. When the law brought home the boy's body, old Grinder would weep crocodile tears and tug his hair at the bloody evil men that did. And then he'd go back to his room and play some music and drink some brandy and sleep the sleep of the unjust. We couldn't do the same, and so we tried to bring up William's spirits instead. And when he'd had enough of it, he lit it out on his own. The first we knew of it was when he didn't turn up for breakfast. This wasn't unheard of. Any of the free children of St. Aggie's was able to rise and wake whenever he chose. But William had been a regular at breakfast every day. I made my way upstairs to the dormer room where the boys slept to look for him and found his bed empty, his coat and his peg leg and crutch gone. He's gone, Monty said, long gone. He sighed and looked out the window. Must be trying to get back to Gatineau, he shook his head. Do you think he'll make it, I said, knowing the answer, but hoping that Monty would lie to me. Not a chance, Monty said, not him. He'll either be beaten, arrested, or worse by sundown. That lad hasn't any self-preservation instincts. At this, the dining room fell silent, and all eyes turned on Monty, and I saw in a flash what a terrible burden we all put on him. Savior, 
father, chieftain. He twisted his face into a halfway convincing smile. Oh, maybe not. He might just be hiding out down the road. Tell you what, eat up and we'll go searching for him. I never saw a load of plates cleared faster. It was bare minutes before we were formed up in the parlor, divided into groups, and sent out into Muddy York to find William Sanasi. We turned that bad old city upside down, asking nosy questions and sticking our heads in where they didn't belong. But Monty had been doubly right the first time around. The police found William Sanasi's body in a marshy bit of land off the Leslie Street spit. His pockets had been slit, his pathetic paper sack of belongings torn, and his clothes scattered, and his fine hand-turned leg was gone. He had been dead for hours. The detective inspector who presented himself that afternoon at St. Aggie's was trailed by a team of technicians who had a wire sound tape recorder and a portable logic engine for inputting the data of his investigation. He seemed very proud of his machine, even though it came with three convicts from the King Street Gowl in shackles and iron legs who worked tirelessly to keep the springs wound, toiling in a lather of sweat and heavy breath, heat boiling off their shaved heads in shimmering waves. He showed up just as the clock in the parlor chimed eight times, a bear chasing a bird around a track as it sang the hour. We peered out of the windows in the upper floors and saw the inspector and understood why Monty had been so morose all afternoon. But Monty did us proud. He went to the door with his familiar swagger and swung it wide, extending his hand to the inspector. Montague Goldfarb, at your service, officer. Our patron has stepped away, but please do come in. The inspector gravely shook the proffered hand, his huge glove mitt swallowing Monty's boyish hands. It was easy to forget that he was just a child, but the looming presence of the giant inspector reminded us all. Master Goldfob, the inspector said, taking off his hat and peering through his smoked monocle at the children in the parlor. All of us sat with hands folded like we were in a pantomime about the best-behaved, most crippled, most terrified, least threatening children in all the colonies. I'm sorry to hear that Mr. Grindersworth is not at home to the constabulary. Do you have any notion as to what temporal juncture we might expect him? If I hadn't been concentrating on not peeing myself with terror, the inspector's pompous speech might have sent me to laughing. Monty didn't bat an eye. Mr. Grindersworth was called away to see his brother in Salt St. Marie, and we expect him tomorrow. I'm his designated lieutenant, though perhaps I might help you. The inspector stroked his forked beard and gave us another long look. Tomorrow, hey? But I don't suppose that justice should wait that long. Master Goldfarb, I have the grim intelligence for you as regards of one of your young compatriots. A master... He consulted a punched card that was held in a hopper on his clanking logic engine. William Sanasi. He lies even now upon a slab in the city morgue. Someone of authority from this institution is required to confirm the preliminary identification. You will do, I suppose, though your patron will have to present himself post-haste in order to sign several official documents that necessarily accompany an event of such gravity. We'd known as soon as the inspector turned up at St. Aggie's door that it meant that William was dead. If he was merely in trouble, it would have been a constable dragging him by the ear. We half-children of St. Aggie's only raided a full inspector when we were topped by some evil bastard in this evil town. But hearing the inspector say the words puffing them through his drooping mustache that made him real. None of us had ever cried when St. Aggie's children were taken by the streets, at least not where the others could see it. But this time around, without Griner to shoot us filthy daggers if we made a peep while the law was about, it opened the floodgates. Boys and girls, young and old, we, we cried for poor little William. He'd come to the best of all possible St. Aggie's, but it hadn't been good enough for him. 
he wanted to go back to his parents who'd sold him in a service, wanted to return to his mam's lap and bosom. Who among us didn't want that in his secret heart? Monty's tears were silent, and they rolled down his cheeks as he shrugged into his coat and hat and let the inspector, who was clearly embarrassed by the display, lead him out the door. When Monty came home, he arrived at a house full of children who were ready to go mad. We'd cried ourselves hoarse, then sat about the parlor, not knowing what to do. If there had been any of old Grinder's booze still in the house, we'd have drunk it. What's the plan, then, he said, coming through the door. We've got one night until that bastard comes back. If he doesn't find Grinder, he'll go to the sisters, and it'll come down around our ears. What's more, he knows Grinder, personal, from the other dead ones in the years gone by, and I don't think he'll be fooled by our machine, no matter how it goes. What's the plan, I said, my mouth hanging open. Monty, the, the plan is we're all going to jail, and you and I and everyone else who helped cover up the killing of Grinder will dance at the rope's end. He gave me a considering look. Sheldon is absolutely the worst plan I've ever heard. And then he grinned at us the way he did, and we all knew that somehow it would all be all right. Constable, come quick, he's going to kill himself. I practiced the line for the fiftieth time, willing my eyes to go wider, my voice to carry more alarm. Behind me, Monty scowled at my reflection in the mirror in Grinder's personal toilet, where I'd been holed up for hours. Verily, the stage lost a great player when the machine mangled you, Sean. You're perfect. Now get moving before I tear the remaining iron off and beat you with it. Go! Phase one of the plan was easy enough. We'd smuggle our grinder up onto the latticework of steel and scaffold where they were building the mighty Prince Edward Viaduct at the end of Bluer Street. Monty had punched in his program already. He'd pace back and forth, tugging his hair, shaking his head like a maddened man, and then abruptly he'd turn and fling himself bodily off the platform, plunging 130 feet into the Don River, where he would simply disintegrate into a million cogs, gears, springs, and struts, which would sink to the riverbed and begin to rust away. The coppers would recover his clothes, and those, combined with the eyewitness testimony of the constable I was responsible for bringing to the bridge, would establish in everyone's mind exactly what had happened and how. Grinders was so distraught at one more death from among his charges that he had popped his own clogs in grief. We were all of us standing ready to testify as to how poor William was Grinders' favorite and a boy he loved like a son and so forth. Who would suspect a bunch of helpless cripples anyway? That was the theory, at least, but now I was actually standing by the bridge watching six half-children wrestle the automaton into place, striving for silence so as not to alert the guards who were charged with defending the structure they were already calling Suicide's Magnet, and I couldn't believe that it would possibly work. Five of the children scampered away, climbing back down the scaffolds, slipping and sliding and nearly dying more times than I could count, causing my heart was thundering in my chest so hard I thought I might die on the spot. Then they were safely away, climbing back up the ravine's walls in the mud and the snow, almost invisible in the dusky dawn light. Monty waved an arm at me, and I knew it was my cue that I should be off to rouse the constabulary, but I found myself rooted to the spot. In that moment, every doubt and fear and misery I'd ever harbored crowded back into me. The misery of being abandoned by my family, the sorrow and loneliness I felt in the Prentice lads, the humiliation of Grinder's savage beatings and harangues, the shame of my injury and every time I groveled before a drunk or pitying lady with my stump on display for pennies to fetch home to Grinder. What was I doing? There was no way I could possibly pull this off. I wasn't enough of a man, nor enough of a boy. But then I thought of all the moments since the coming of Monty Goldfarb. 
the million-fold triumphs of ingenuity and hard work, the computing power I'd stolen out from under the nose of the calculators who had treated me as a mere work ox before my injury. I thought of the cash we'd brought in, the children who'd smiled and sung and danced on the worn floors of St. Aggie's, and... And I ran to the policeman, who was warming himself by doing a curious hopping dance in place and hands in his armpits. Constable, I piped, all sham terror that no one would have known for a sham. Constable, come quick, he's going to kill himself. The sister, who came to sit with us morning kitties that night, was called Sister Mary Immaculata, and she was kindly, if a bit dim. I remembered her from my stay in the hospital after my maiming. A slightly vacant, prune-faced woman with a wimple who'd bathed my wounds gently and given me solemn hugs when I woke screaming in the middle of the night. She was positive that the children of St. Aggie's were inconsolable over the suicide of our beloved patron, Zophar Grindersworth, and she doled out these solemn cuddles to anyone foolish enough to stray near her. That none of us shed a tear was lost on her, though she did note with approval how smoothly the operation of St. Aggie's continued without Grinder's oversight. The next afternoon, Sister Mary Immaculata circulated among us, offering reassurance that a new master would be found for St. Aggie's. None of us was much comforted by this. We knew the kind of man who was likely to fill such a plum vacancy. If only there were some way we could go on running this place on our own, I moaned under my breath, trying to concentrate on repairing the pressure gauge on the pneumatic evacuator that we'd taken in for mending. Monty shot me a look. He had taken the sisters coming very hard. I don't think I have it in me to kill the next one, too. Anyway, they're bound to notice if we keep on assassinating our gardens. I snickered despite myself. Then my gloomy pal descended again. It had all been so good. How could we possibly return to the old way? but there was no way the sisters would let a bunch of crippled children govern themselves. What a waste, I said. What a waste of all this potential. At least I'll be shut out of it in two years, Monty said. How long have you got to your 18th? My brow furrowed. I looked out of the grimy workshop window onto the iry gray February sky. It's February 10th today. 11th, he said. I laughed an ugly sound. Why, Monty, my friend, today is my birthday. I believe I have survived St. Aggie's to graduate to bigger and better things. I have attained my majority, old son. He held out a hand and solemnly shook my hook with it. Happy birthday and congratulations then, Sean. May the world treat you with all the care you deserve. I stood. The scrape of my chair, very loud and sudden. I realized I had no idea what I could do next. I had managed to completely forget that my graduation from St. Aggie's was looming, that I would be a free man. In my mind, I'd imagined myself dwelling at St. Aggie's forever. Forever. You look like you just got hit in the head with a shovel, Monty said. What on earth is going through that mind of yours? I didn't answer. I was already on my way to find Sister Immaculata. I found her in the kitchen helping legless Dora make toast for tea over the fire's grate. Sister, I said, a word, please. As she turned and followed me into the pantry off the kitchen, some of the fear I'd felt on the bridge bubbled up in me. I tamped it back down again firmly, like pistons compressing some superheated gas. She was really just as I remembered her. And she had remembered me, too. She remembered all of us, the children she'd held in the night, and then consigned to this hell upon earth, all unknowing. Sister Mary Immaculata, I attained my 18th birthday today. She opened her mouth to congratulate me, but I held up my stump. I turned 18 today, sister. I am a man. I have attained my majority. I am at liberty, and I must seek my fortune in the world. I have a proposal for you accordingly. I put everything I had into this, every dream of confidence and maturity I'd learned since we inmates had taken over the asylum. 
I was Mr. Grindersworth's lieutenant and assistant in every matter relating to the daily operation of this place. Many's the day I did every bit of work that there was to do while Mr. Grindersworth attended to family matters. I know every inch of this place, every soul in it, and I've had the benefit of excellent training and education that there ever is to have. I had always thought to seek my fortune in the world as a mechanic of some kind, if any shop would have a half-made thing like me, but seeing as you find yourself at loose ends in the superintendent department, I thought I might perhaps put my plans on hold for the time being until such time as a full search could be conducted. Sean, she said, her face wrinkling into a gap-toothed smile, are you proposing that you might run St. Agatha's? It took everything I could not to wilt under the pity and amusement in that smile. I am, sister, I am. I have all but run it for months now, and have every confidence in my capacity to go on doing so for long as need be. I kept my gaze and my voice even. I believe that the noble mission of St. Aggie's is a truly attainable one, that it can rehabilitize such damaged things as we and prepare us for the wider world. She shook her head. Sean, she said softly. Sean, I wish it could be. But there's no hope that such an appointment would be approved by the Board of Governors. I nodded. Yes, I thought so. But do the Governors need to approve a temporary appointment? A stopgap until a suitable person could be found? Her smile changed, got wider. You have certainly come into your own shrewdness here, haven't you? I was taught well, I said, and smiled back. The temporary has a way of becoming permanent. That was my bolt of inspiration, my galvanic realization. Once the sisters had something that worked, that did not call attention to itself, that took in crippled children and released whole persons some years later, they didn't need to muck about with it. As the mechanics say, if it isn't broken, it doesn't want fixing. I'm no mechanic, not anymore. The daily runnings of St. Aggie's occupied a larger and larger slice of my time, until I found that I knew more about the tending to a child's fever or soothing away of a nightmare than I did about hijacking the vast computers to do our bidding. But that's no matter, as we have any number of apprentice computer men and computer women turning up on our doorsteps. So long as the machineries of industry grind on, the supply will be inexhaustible. Monty visits me from time to time, mostly to scout for talent. His shop, Goldfarb and Associates, has a roaring trade in computational novelties and service, and if anyone is bothered by the appearance of a factory filled with the halt of the lame, the blind, the crippled, they are thankfully outnumbered by those who are delighted by the quality of work and good value in his schedule of pricing. But it was indeed a golden time, that time when I was but a boy at St. Aggie's among the boys and girls, a cog in a machine that Monty built of us. Part of a great uplifting, a transformation from a hell to something like heaven. That I'm sentenced to serve in this heaven I helped make is no great burden, I suppose. Still, I do yearn to screw a jeweler's loop into my eye, pick up a fine tool and bend the sodium lamp to shine upon some cunning mechanism that wants fixing. For machines may be bulky, and they may destroy us with their terrible appetite for oil, blood, and flesh— but they behave according to a fixed rules that can be understood by anyone with the cunning to look upon them and winkle out their secrets. Children are ever so much more complicated. Though, I believe I may be learning a little about them, too. And that was our story. Hope you enjoyed. We've got a cool, related song to play for you guys, a special closing music this week. A song called Watchmaker's Apprentice by the band Clockwork Quartet. 
You can download the song and hear more from them at clockworkquartet.com. All right, let's hit some episode feedback with everyone's favorite assistant editor, Bill Peters. Take it away, Billy Boy. Hello, faithful listeners. I'm here this week with the feedback for episode 308, Kill Me, by Viler Kafton and read by R. Merlafferty. This one is a somewhat, well, entirely unsettling tale of murderous prostitution out in the West. Electric Paladin found the story incredibly disappointing. In fact, I hated it. I was tempted to turn it off, but I kept listening because I have a lot of faith in Viler Kafton and hoped it would get better. I hated the way the story reduced masochism to a desire to die and sadism to a desire to kill. Actually, both fantasies are quite rare. I hated that all the men in the story were jerks, and that the only positively depicted sadist, the narrator's former play partner, was a woman. The story infuriated me from about one quarter mark all the way to the finish. I can't fault the craft of the story. Kafton is a very good writer, and it shows in the prose. The story is very well paced, the descriptions are just bloody enough to thrill, and the character's predicament is exquisitely explicated. If it wasn't for all the stuff I hated, I would have liked this story quite a lot. Unblinking said, The premise of this was really interesting. With the government regulations that no second copy of a person's mind can ever exist, with the job of the death workers who get paid to be killed and the messed up encouragement of the killers, Hey, look, you can practice amateur killing until you get it just perfect, and then you can go pro. I thought the part about her old acquaintances showing up was really good. It was an interesting character moment and great world building. Then it really dragged for the rest of the time. He can't even explain to her exactly what his ulterior plan is, and she's not paying attention by that time. She's just counting her money. The contract was kind of ridiculous, and it had no way to be enforced. Here, take all the money... And then you can't hurt yourself forever. Right. And that's it for this week. Tune in next week for the feedback for episode 309, The Insurance Agent. Thanks, Bill. All right, folks, that's our show. You know the drill. If you enjoy Escape Pod and all the awesome free science fiction we bring you week to week, consider throwing a donation our way via the donation links on our website, escapepod.org. We really appreciate whatever you can give. Escape Pod's a production of Escape Artists Incorporated. It's produced with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change or sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. Our opening music was used with the permission of Daikaiju. Check them out at daikaiju.com. And our closing quotation this week comes from singer-songwriter James Taylor, who said, Sweet dreams and flying machines in pieces on the ground.
And the miser made me work for every penny of my wage Till he found he could replace me with a clockwork machine And he threw me right out on the street To check that his workshop back window was closed. No, I'm not a burglar, and I'm no vandal nor the old man had to suffer, but I wanted something more. I wanted him to feel it and know it was me. And I knew that his clocks were the key I sat in his workshop, my thoughts running wild And it suddenly hit me And I looked up and smiled For I knew that I'd have him And I knew that I'd do it in style Wound springs and a gentleman's pocket watch stays by his heart, and that's where the damage can start. Now I'm no machine, but I can work when I choose, with hands good as any. When I've something to prove So I stayed up all night Among cog springs and screws And I didn't stop till I was through I rigged up a watch to do more than just shine And I didn't balk once Invention that still kept impeccable time.
a timepiece and pay on the spot. You wound it and wore it, and at six on the dot, he came to a messy and permanent stop. Now, Mr. MacArthur's got blood on his hands, and he barely made bail. 